color is pretty fantastic too. Love that. Um, go with me to Genesis 22, if you would, please. We'll dive into that in just a second. But before we do, I'd really like to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, we come together as a group of people who would really like to know more about you and to know more about who we are to you and about ourselves. And all that is within what you're going to show us now in the story about how you see us and how you value us and how we should see you. And it, it, it sets us back a little bit. So I pray that you would be at work right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to give us clarity and understanding and allow these things that we learn to be used in our life this coming week, especially for the sake of those individuals who are desperately looking for answers in their life, that you might use us to speak into someone's life. Or perhaps there's an individual here right now, God, that you need to draw to yourself closer. I pray that you would do that and use your word for that end. We pray for these things in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. Just after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but before the crucifixion, before the Garden of Gethsemane, he's standing with a group of his followers, and he knew what was coming. He knew the crucifixion was only days away, and said to them, what, should I tell the Father to remove me from this moment? It's for this moment that I came. Because if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. So he posed a rhetorical question, knowing that he's about to face the greatest trial ever. And yet he recognized God could remove him from that. He said, I could speak, and he would send a legion of angels to rescue me. But he wanted us to understand that he was here for the purpose of which he came. And he so fully surrendered that he would never back away from what he came to do. So his statement was essentially, I'm fully committed. Which is why you find him two chapters earlier calling out his followers with this statement. Look with me at Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That verse is a bit of a gut check. Because most of us will read that and stop and say, wait, do I go to that level for God? Do I really surrender to that degree? He didn't say, don't love your mother, don't love your father. He's saying, do you put things ahead of me to a greater degree that you would follow them instead of following me? Well, you're going to find that very story playing out in Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Now, before we move forward, we need to define what does it look like to surrender all? Because we just sang that in that third song about surrendering all. It's all yours. But we say it so casually because it's part of songs. What does it actually mean? Well, here's a detail for you. Surrendering all is clearly between you and God. I don't get to decide what that looks like for you. And you, likewise, don't get to decide what that looks like for someone else. It's a personal relationship decision. But you'll discover in the story this morning that the depth of obedience that God is calling Abraham to 
it triggers that very issue in his life. It triggers a crisis. We saw it last week when he was called to send Ishmael out from his house. And I told you the illustration was it was like a curtain shaking in the wind. That's how bad Abraham was trembling. Well, this morning it goes to a whole new level because it's the ultimate challenge. When he's asked, Abraham is asked to lay Isaac down on an altar. Now, I've personally come to the conclusion, I don't know if you've arrived at this conclusion, but I've come to the conclusion that when God sends trials our way or when he sends testings our way, I've come to this conclusion. It's actually a compliment. It's a compliment when God sends a test or a trial or a hardship in our direction because of this reason. Because he never sends a trial or a test unless he knows you are ready for it. And that's matched from Scripture. Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. See, check this. If he will not allow you to go through something that you wouldn't be able to bear up under, it stands to reason that he absolutely knew that it was coming, and he knows that that particular testing is for your good. It means that God is working in it for a purpose. Whatever trial, whatever testing you might be going through, because he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of people trip, trip, trip over that word temptation when they see that in 1 Corinthians. It says, there's no temptation that's come your way. It's not talking about like a chocolate brownie coming your way, okay? That's not that kind of temptation. That's a temptation, but that's on a different level. It's, it's this particular Greek word. I'm, I apologize that we don't have notes for you this morning. If you were looking for those when you came in, um, we had a, a glitch. But there's the particular word that would have been in your notes. This particular Greek word is talking about temptation when it says putting something to proof. Speaking of an adversity, you might call it a circumstance, a circumstance that comes your way. And I'm asking this morning, do you have a trial right now or a testing that you're going through or that you've recently gone through? Know this, it is not by accident that God has allowed that into your life. Because Scripture records that He does those things to perfect our faith. So you may be arriving here this morning thinking, you know, I'm pretty good where I'm at. I don't need my faith anymore perfected. I think I'll stay where I'm at. Well, you wouldn't be the first to arrive at that conclusion. But God knows you. He knows you so well. He knows exactly what you need to come into your life. There's a lady that lived in France in the 1600s. I want to read her name so I pronounce it correctly. You'll see her quote on the screen. Jean-Marie Bouvier de la Motte Guyenne. She's simply known as Madame Guyenne, okay? And she said this, Our faith is not real until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable. Now, she's not talking about you not having faith. She's talking about the reality that when your faith is tested, then you know. Then you know whether or not it's really real. Let's dive into the story. Twenty years have passed since chapter 21, where we were at last week. It's now chapter 22. Isaac is no longer three years old. When we saw him last time, he's a toddler. He's being beat up by his 17-year-old brother. But now in chapter 22, he's a young man, and he's the delight of his parents' heart. 
True to his name, he's brought laughter into the household. But like this unexpected crack of thunder on a blue sky day comes this stunning command from God. Verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, now take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Uh, on one level, if, if you're new to church and you're new to the Bible, you're reading that and you're thinking right now like, what? <laughs> Did I just read that right? Now, on another level, if you're a student of the Bible, you're reading that right now and you're thinking, what? Did I just read that right? Because it's a kick in the gut to all of us. It's that challenging point that echoes what Jesus said. If you don't love me more than all those things you hold precious, you don't belong to me. So perhaps you're wondering right now if there's some fancy Hebrew word or term that will make it all better. And, and maybe I just don't understand it right. Well, let me show you with the phrase again, Genesis 22.2. Offer him there as a burnt offering. Well, here's the Hebrew word that goes with it. It's the word olah. And it's talking specifically about something that goes up in smoke. Oh, okay. I guess it means what I thought it would meant. Actually translated into the English language, it's translated this way. Holocaust. Holocaust. The decimation. The evaporation. So that kind of destruction... A burnt offering appears to be the oldest form of offering in history. It very likely is the form that Abel used back in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain and Abel came before God and made offerings. Burnt offering is probably what Abel did. Been around for a very, very long time. And we're told in the Old Testament that the smoke from burnt sacrifices, they ascend to God according to Leviticus 1.9, like a soothing aroma to the Lord. How do I understand that then? But here's the purpose behind it. The burnt offerings were always used as a marker. A point in someone's life in which an effort was made to renew the relationship between a sinner and God. To restore a relationship in most cases. So when Moses comes along, and it's hundreds of years after the moment you're looking at here, when the law of Moses is established, God gave Israel some really specific instructions as to how to do these burnt offerings what they would symbolize, when they could do it, how they should carry it about. But that's many, hundreds of years later. In specific, very technical terms, the burnt offering is the complete destruction of the animal, except for the hide of the animal. And, and prior to stone altars or iron altars, they would use wood, and, and wood would be piled up in a large grid-like pattern. You just cross your fingers like a grid like that, and you would imagine this wood be stacked up like a big grid, a high pile. And when it was big enough and it would consume the entire offering, that's when they knew they were at the point they could stop. So we're told those kind of offerings ascend up to God as a soothing aroma, but nowhere in history. Nowhere in the Bible before this moment in time is anyone ever asked to participate in a human sacrifice. Yet, in no uncertain terms, God is ordering Abraham to offer his son, his only son, his only begotten son, Scripture says, the very one whom he and Sarah have waited 25 years for. 
that one, that one God commands to be offered as this burnt offering, and we're told that the entire scenario is a test of where Abraham is at. The Hebrew word that's used here is nachnaksah, and it actually is talking about testing something to prove it, to try it. But look at the very end of the definition, adventure. Now, that's weird that that would be in there, isn't it? How do I think I understand that? You ever been on a ropes course or watched somebody on a ropes course, or maybe you've been on an adventure yourself that pushes you to your limit? What is a ropes course designed to do? In the case of a ropes course, it's meant to test the individual. So people who are watching an individual go through a ropes course would understand that person's being pushed to a certain limit. But a ropes course is also for the person who's on the test, proving to themselves. So people watching and to the individual themselves, they can measure themselves. Now, God has already declared Abraham is righteous. Back in Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God and God credited him to him as righteousness. So what more could he possibly want? And I'll ask that in two ways. What more could he, capital H, God, want? And what more could Abraham, small h, possibly desire? Abraham is being given here an opportunity, a, a privilege, if you will, to demonstrate or corroborate his faith, where he really stands with God. So the question is, is his future confidence based in his son whom God has promised to him, or is it in the God who gave him his son? So now that which is precious to him, that thing that he treasures, your only son, I want you to offer. And every word of the command is enough to pierce the heart of any individual. Go back into the story, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Go to the land of Moriah and one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, Mount Moriah is the very same place where hundreds of years later, David will negotiate a purchase. And he's going to purchase land in order to construct the temple one day. His son Solomon actually constructs the temple and builds it on what they called Mount Moriah at that time. And eventually, Jesus will stand in that temple and teach to the masses and will be persecuted and will be put on trial. That temple that today is occupied by something we all very much know. I'll show you in just a moment. So Abraham has all this particular time to go to that place, Mount Moriah, because it's 60 miles away. We know it today as the Dome of the Rock. And when you go to Jerusalem, you see this image. I don't know. Did we already put it up on the screen, Jody? There it is. The Dome of the Rock is precious to Islam today because they believe that's where Ishmael was offered. Judaism and Christianity says that's where Isaac was offered. And so this mosque, this mount, the Dome of the Rock, is put right there where that very event happened. So check this. After magnificent prosperity, after Abraham has entered into an alliance with the king of the region of the country that he's living in, after his family is at peace, of all things, this threat comes from God now. 
And it's consistent throughout Scripture that God significantly tests and refines those whom He intends to use greatly. Imagine the questions that are racing through Abraham's mind as he's processing what God is asking him. Like, what about the promises? What about the fact that Isaac is supposed to be the one through whom all the world will be blessed? What about the fact that Jesus, the future king, would come through this one? I'm very, very impressed that Abraham hears God and he obeys immediately because he's come to this place in his life in which he understands that God's perfect will never contradicts God's promises. Hear that again. God's perfect will never contradicts God's promises. The two work in harmony. Abraham understands that. Not to say that there isn't terrible emotional pain in this moment, but you can't depend upon your feelings, as we like to say here at New Hope. Your feelings will betray you. Your feelings will lead you down the wrong trail. At that moment, especially in a spiritual crisis, you have to lean into the knowledge of God that God only wants the best for you. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. As I mentioned, Mount Moriah is 60 miles away. So if you're walking and it takes you 20 miles maybe a day, a human, average human walking, that's going to be a three-day walk. On a three-day walk, what are you thinking about over this period of time? Abraham has all this time to reconsider what he's about to do. So clearly, he's not doing this rashly. He's doing this really deliberately. So they're gathering wood, as the passage says. They're splitting the wood. They're walking the trail. And it all adds up to some really torturous, sleepless nights out in the wilderness. If you personally have walked with God for any length of time in your life, you've known the long, empty stare of confusion. Like, is this really what God has asked me to do? Does he really want me to go through this? I'm so confused, it doesn't make any sense. See, it's especially difficult when something comes our way in which we fail to see any logic whatsoever. God is requiring something of Abraham which goes beyond human reasoning. And it's in those moments when you're in the midst of those trials, you have to decide, is God truly sovereign? And if he is, well, then your decision is made. If your decision is that God is in control, your decision is made for you. That's where Abraham's at. And that's why I say I'm terribly impressed by this unwavering, unchallenging obedience not to say that his heart isn't shredded. I'm confident that he's really hurting inside, yet he obeys. Now, I want to press on this issue very, very carefully. And I'm going to deviate for just a moment with you. Just bear with me. We're going to go to James chapter 2. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. It's going to be up on the screen for you. But James writes about this moment in time. And he writes from the perspective of the New Testament, looking back on it. Look with me at James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That verse will trip you up. That became a severe stumbling block to Martin Luther. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther is working through his books of theology, and he comes to the book of James, and he, he wants to write some materials on it for his church. And he severely stumbled over the things that James said. And he actually called James an epistle of straw. Here's the reason why, because Martin Luther is so adamantly opposed to salvation by works. And for that reason, Luther completely missed James's point. Here's what's going on. James is not contradicting salvation by faith alone. Let's just check the crowd here for right now. If, if you believe that you're saved by faith alone, say amen right now. Amen. Okay, that's, that's consistent with Scripture. So James is not contradicting that. He's not contradicting salvation by faith alone. Because here in chapter 2, he's not speaking here of the means of your salvation. He's talking about the outcome. What does it look like in your daily life and the decisions you make? The websites you visit, the conversations that you have, the way you practice your daily habits. What's the outcome in your life? In other words, the evidence that salvation has genuinely occurred. Many people ask this question. I, I hear it consistently over the years. How do I know that I'm actually saved? How do I know that I'm really destined for heaven? And typically, I respond to a person this way. Examine your life. Do you strive personally to follow after Jesus in obedience? James wrote earlier that in chapter 1, he said, faith without works is actually dead. Why did he say that? Because there has to be measurable life change that an individual is truly walking with the Spirit. In other words, the fruits of the Spirit. In your life, do you see an increasing measure Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Are you further along than what you were a year ago at this time? Do you have a better understanding than what you did five years ago at this time of Scripture? Are the things of God making more sense to you? And do you see even the measure of self-control coming out in greater degrees in your life? I'm not causing you or trying to make you cause to be, to be doubting your salvation. I'm asking, do you see the fruits of the Spirit? Because James is asking, without evidence in increasing measure, someone should wonder. That's why we ask the question here at New Hope occasionally, are, are you further along than what you were? Are you pushing on towards the high calling of Christ? The specific event that James is writing about here that he says justified Abraham by works is offering Isaac putting him on the altar, and that occurred many years after God had already declared him righteous. Way back in chapter 15, God said, you're righteous. But the evidence of it, it occurs here in chapter 22. So what James is clarifying is Abraham's willingness to offer Isaac vindicates his faith, and it serves as this witness, as an example to those of us who are desiring to walk in complete faith. Someone who has been made righteous will live righteously. Doesn't that stand to reason? If you've been made righteous, you're going to live righteously. John Kelvin said it this way back in 1560, 
faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That's good. That's really good. Well done, John. It's probably why he's John Kelvin, and I'm not. Very clearly stated. Verse 4, back into the story. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it, took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. So Isaac is packing the wood on his back like a backpack. He's carrying it up the mountainside. Abraham has the torch in his hand. Isaac doesn't have the knife. Abraham has the knife. Josephus writes that Isaac at this point is likely 25 years of age. Jonathan of Targum, an extra-biblical source, he says, I think he's 35. I'm going to lean more towards the younger 20s. I think Josephus is right based on the mathematics that's done here. That's, that's just a detail. But here's what I'm impressed with. These guys are being very deliberate. They're walking with the flaming torch. They're carrying it in their hand, and they're packing wood for the altar because they're not sure if they're going to find wood on the mountainside. In other words, Abraham doesn't intend to get there and then say, oh, man, I forgot the matches. I guess we'll have to do this another day. Maybe we'll make it back here next month. Let's go back home. No, he's being really deliberate about what God has called him to do. See, what is clear is that Abraham has no intention of not carrying through with what God has called him to do. But there's also another thing that's very clear. Abraham has no intention of bringing back a corpse. We don't know all that's going on through his mind, but we do know this detail. He tells the people who are accompanying him, stay here. My son and I are going to go over there and worship, and we will come back to you. And it's written in the plural form, not in the singular form. In other words, we're both coming back alive. We're coming back to you after we worship. Because Abraham knows, regardless of what happens, both he and Isaac will return alive. How does he know that? Because of God's promise. Although it has never happened before, he believes that God can raise someone from the dead. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham mentally turned Isaac over to God, and considered him as one as dead, but believed that God could raise him. Look with me. We know that for sure from Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's impressive, because Abraham did not have what you have today. You, personally, have a more well-developed theology than what Abraham had at this period of time. And I say that confidently because of this. Abraham had never heard of Lazarus. Abraham had never heard of Easter morning. Abraham had never heard of Jesus, but he believed. He understood what God could do. You have a more informed theology than Abraham at this time because he'd never heard of the miracles of the New Testament. 
But so firm is his faith in the character of God, he comes to a realization of the resurrection before a resurrection had ever happened. So if you're looking at the story and saying, what, how in the world could this father have the courage to carry through with this? Here's the answer. Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection to the degree that he found his strength in understanding that God had that power. So God had said, in Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We understand that Jesus will come through his line one day. So Abraham understood that that blessing meant something future for the whole world. And this is his rationale. If God has asked me to do that, there's only one possible explanation. God will raise him back up again. This should echo in your life for you right now because you're, you're wrestling through spiritual problems as you see a God who is willing to put someone on the altar like that. I had an individual come to me in between services who said that their family member left the faith of Christianity because of this story. If that's the way God is, I don't want anything to do with him. Well, the failing to understand where this story is going and what it's representing, I could see where people might jump to those conclusions. I'm not minimizing what someone's thinking, but hear me on this. Sincerely wrestling with spiritual problems is not a lack of faith for an individual. Here at New Hope, we don't check our brain at the door when we come inside the building. Here's what we do know, though. Godly faith refuses to doubt God's word. If God says it, you can believe it. So if God's doing it, it must be for a reason, even though we may not understand the reason. But hear this. In the midst of the wrestling that you go through, when you're spiritually wrestling through issues, there's a testing that takes place. As hard as it may seem at the time that you're going through it, those testings, according to Scripture, are designed to strengthen you. So James writes in James 1.3, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Godly faith is not full understanding. Godly faith is full trust. Godly faith is not full understanding. It is full trust. Hebrews 11.1, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. You haven't seen heaven yet, but you have conviction that it exists, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, and that he will receive you unto himself one day. Why do you believe that? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he was resurrected on the third day. Did you see it? No but you have the conviction of things not seen. Now, back into the story. Isaac doesn't know what his daddy's plan is. He has no idea what's about to unfold. He just thinks they're going to offer a sacrifice. So, here we go to verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now put yourself in Abraham's place. When Isaac asked the question, hey, dad, not seeing an offering. What's going to happen here? How do you respond in that moment when you're 
only son, doesn't matter if it's your only son, when one of your children asks you, where's the sacrifice? How do you answer that question other than to say, I don't know, but God's got this. God's got this. And in that, you see that Abraham's not trying to ignore the obvious. I wrote this. I want to put it on the screen just for you. Understand this when you read this story. Biblical faith does not close its eyes to reality. But in spite of what is seen, believes God is capable. Do you believe that God is able this morning? You're among good company. Biblical faith acknowledges the reality of the circumstances. It doesn't stick its head in the sand. This is an issue. But it doesn't hide from that. Biblical faith acknowledges the reality of the circumstances, but then it acknowledges the God who is not bound by circumstances. I say that for this reason. Our world that we live in today, our world desperately needs to see more Christians who believe that God is able. Our world is looking for answers. And they look to Christ followers and watch them, wondering, is it real? Is it legit in your life? Does it really measure out? Do you believe in a God who is really able? Abraham's faith doesn't depend on human factors. It depends on the God who is able. So we find in Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Meaning this, physiological, biological, scientific facts do matter. But physiological, scientific facts do not diminish Abraham's confidence here because he knows that natural problems are not an issue for the God of the supernatural. God is not limited by the things that we are limited by. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So everything is ready. The the torch is burning next to them. Everything is neatly arranged in a pile. And the sacrifice has been bound. So nothing remains but to make the cut. And by God's command, he's intending to sever the juggler vein. Because Abraham is a shepherd too. He owns a lot of sheep. And he knows what it is to slaughter an animal. And a very quick death is to cut the juggler vein, very little pain, a very quick death. Lay the flesh on the altar and let it be burned to ashes. And in this moment, this instrument of death is laying next to his son who's been bound. And we're told that's when Abraham puts forth his hand. And I'm thinking he's again like the curtain in the wind, shaking. If you're listening audibly and not watching visually right now, shaking meaning reaching out your hand and it is trembling because your heart is racing. How could it not? Abraham is just as human as you and I. But there's another component here. We often think about what this does to Abraham, but I want you to consider Isaac for just a moment. Obviously, it's with his consent. He's 25 years old. His dad is over 100. Could he take his dad out if he wanted to? Absolutely. Could he resist? Absolutely. So think about the retelling of this story around the campfire at night over the hundreds of years later. People saying, 
Look at how much Abraham loved God that he would not hold back his only begotten son. And someone should interrupt at that point and say, but look at the love of Isaac. That he loved his dad so much and that he loved God so much. I've often thought about what it must have been like for Isaac going back home later and breaking through the door and saying to his mom, Mom, you won't believe what Dad and I did today. (laughs) How are you going to explain that one? Other than understanding Scripture. So verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you, Yahweh, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Yahweh speaks of the awe of God. It's not just fear in the sense that God can pound you into the ground. It's all-encompassing awe of the holiness of God. So this is like God saying, now I know that you truly hold me as holy. God's rule in our life is of little value until we truly yield to what he's called us to, until we really give up that thing that we think is so precious. Not that he's going to take it, but that we're willing to part with it. When we come to that place, when we come to that place that God means more to us than anything, when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, then we're replicating the faith that Abraham's evidencing here. Because Abraham's actions are really an early reflection of what we saw Jesus say at the very beginning. You love something more than me? You're not worthy of me. You put something else in first place? That's really bold and audacious for Jesus to say to them at that time. But every single person whose life has ever counted for God has been willing to give up that one area that they held precious in their life. And it's not that your salvation requires that work, because salvation is by faith alone. But it's the evidence, it's the outgrowth of your life that you're willing to walk according to obedience of what God has called you to. Let's finish out the story. Verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham did what he could do because he is fully persuaded that God has the power and the will. He never asked, can God do it? That's not a valid question. He doesn't even go there. Will God? That's the question we wrestle with. Will God intervene? Abraham is fully persuaded in this case that God will do it because he has complete confidence in the promise of God. So he calls it, the Lord will provide. He names it. Look at it, Genesis 22. He actually titles that spot. What a weird name. The Lord will provide. This statement actually embodies what it means to believe God, that the Lord will provide. To believe that God has your best interest at heart. 
And it screams across the millennia because it's not just talking about the power of God. It's talking about the goodness of God, that he wants to provide a way and that he has done it. So he has the power, he has the capacity, but he also has the will to do it. Dr. Douglas Moo is a well-respected theologian. He said it this way, Abraham's faith was not a leap into the dark, but a leap from the evidence of his senses, in other words, his feelings, into the security of God's word and promise. Have you ever thought of God's word that way? Have you ever thought of the Bible that way, like a security blanket? When you trust it, it's the security blanket you wrap your life in. I think this is a really great statement. He's, he's jumping into the security of God's word. So let's understand biblical faith this way. Biblical faith is the total surrender to the ability and the willingness of God to carry out his promises. Here's how the story ends, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess, pay careful attention to that statement, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." God knew from all eternity what Abraham would do. If he didn't, we have a much bigger problem than just Isaac on the altar. God knew because he's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knew from eternity what Abraham would do. But what he did is he allowed Abraham to be proved to himself and to us. And so he stands as this witness and an example throughout millennia. Now, I know you think I'm done, but I'm not. <laughs> Just bear with me. And I, I said two more minutes in the 9 o'clock service, and it actually was like four more minutes. Just hang with me, okay? How much love is this that one would not withhold his only son? How much devotion and dedication What does John 3.16 say, church? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave what church? His only only begotten Son. His only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. In Isaac's case, a substitute died for him, but no one could take the place of Jesus on the cross. He's the only sacrifice. He's the only one sinless in the history of the world, the only human who's also God who could do what he did. And for that reason, we're told according to Scripture in Romans 8, 32, for that reason, God did not spare his only son, but delivered him over for us all. I asked you to pay very careful attention to your seed shall possess the gate when God made that commitment to Abraham for this reason. Your seed shall possess the gate of your enemy. Well, that was literally true in the case of King David and King Solomon and Joshua and Moses throughout the history of Israel. They did possess the gate of their enemy, and it literally bared out in their life. But spiritually, 
it also has bared out in your life. Bared, I think born. It is born out in your life for this reason. You are the seed of Abraham, according to Scripture. Spiritually, you are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. If you come to Christ in faith, that's what you're called. You're the heir. You're the recipients of it. Spiritually, when Jesus destroyed Satan, he took out what we're told are the gates of hell, and he rescued those who are his from their enemy at the gate The imagery is incredibly powerful for the church to understand that in your seed, the gate will be taken down, literally and spiritually. So God did not spare his own son in order to accomplish that purpose. How does that relate to you? Scripture records that because of belief, God sees Abraham as righteous. Is that not what we're after every week? Would you not love to walk out the door, take on the week this week, and know that you know that you know for certain that God sees you righteous right in this moment, even though you did what you did last week, or a month ago, or five years ago? We have a way bigger problem forgiving ourselves than God has forgiving us. So the righteousness that's attributed to you is attributed to you because of your belief. And here's why I want you to hang with me. That righteousness is what we're after. It's what Adam needed. It's what Noah needed. It's what Abraham needed. It's what Moses needed. It's what we need in 2022. We need the righteousness that only he can give if we hope to have heaven one day. So your believing is viewed exactly this way when you exercise the same faith as Abraham. Abraham's faith was directed towards what would happen in the future. Your faith is directed towards what happened in the past. You have all that information. And what will be credited to you in the future when you inherit heaven. So scripture says this in John 20, 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, not working, church, that believing you may have life in his name. This is not hard. God makes a commitment to you, and his commitment is this. When you believe that he is able, when you believe, he says, I will credit that to you as righteousness so that you can have life perfect life, eternal life, and forgiveness of your sins. If you will believe, how do I know? Well, the evidence is in your life. Is there fruit? Are you carrying out the works of the Spirit in your life? So, here's where we end. Know this, first of all. If you have someone in your life who wonders about these things, how can they have a brand new beginning? I encourage you, take these last two minutes and sit down with them. Go to the website and play this for them later this week if they're struggling. Or a month from now, if you've got somebody struggling, go to this. So hear me on this and do not reach for your car keys. When we exercise faith as Abraham and believe God, God makes a commitment to us and he credits righteousness to us as well. And here's the good news of the gospel. The Lord God takes our believing... And he counts it to us 
as righteousness. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, it's true. It's absolutely true. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, but it wasn't just written for him. Go with me on the screen, Romans 4, 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Okay, if it's not just for him, who's it for? It's for you. Catch that. God tells Moses to write these things down in Genesis 22 so that it will reverberate across the millennia all the way to 2022 so that future generations will know that they know that they know they can believe God when he says, you are belonging to me. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the Bible says there's things that happened in the past that you didn't get to see. And it has an impact on how you live today. And we're told that those things are not only for our instruction. They're written to give you hope. And in this case, they lay down a really important truth. You know anybody living in a broken world? Yep. I'm right there with you. We're all living in a broken world. Do you know anyone who's longing for a new beginning and want a fresh new start? Is this you today? Do you want it? Do you need a new beginning? Or do you need to be reminded of what you already have? Here's why it was written. Romans 4.24, these things were written for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe. Now, specifically, this word, our, belongs to a people group. It's not just to anybody, but to us who believe. It's believers that God credits with righteousness, just as he did with Abraham. And because God never changes, he treats us exactly with the exact same mercy he did Abraham, crediting our belief as righteousness. So here's the big issue to end on. Are you seeing the preeminence of this issue as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus? You should, Romans 4.24 but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And there it is. That is the apex of the Bible. He summed it up incredibly perfectly to say this is the theme. It all hinges on this belief thing that we spend so much time focusing on. Believing in what? Romans 4.24. Believing in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, the key is if we believe, according to verse 24, faith is God's condition for salvation. And because the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of God the Son, to reject Jesus' resurrection is to say, yeah, his death amounted to nothing. He's just another guy. He died on a Roman cross. doesn't mean anything. Well, if you want the gospel in 16 words, here's the gospel in 16 words. Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. God the Father loves you so much, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. Why would he do that? Because of our transgressions, verse 25. Because we have sin and we can't do anything about it. And our sin 
caused Jesus to have to die, and Jesus died so you wouldn't have to carry the weight of your sin into eternity. But praise God, verse 25 does not end there. It goes on to say, He was raised because of our justification. Thank you, God. Thank you for that reality. See, the resurrection of the dead is the proof of the justification. You deny the resurrection, you deny the power of God. And with a dead Jesus, your justification is impossible. If He didn't die, we're hopeless. If He didn't get resurrected, we're even more hopeless. So in order to be justified, it's absolutely essential that the payment was made and that the payment was acceptable. The evidence of the payment is the resurrection. So here's where I end. Therefore, you, if you believe, are justified and seen as righteous in the eyes of God, and it is a justification I could never achieve in my own power. Amen? Amen. That's the reality. So this week, If you find yourself reaching out to someone who has never known a relationship with God, they've never been able to leave their past behind them, and they've never known what it is to be forgiven of their sins, be sure that in the midst of these conversations, those conversations cannot be complete without these two components at the center stage. And those two components are that Jesus died because of our transgressions, delivered to death because of our sin, but he was delivered from death for our justification. Thank you, Lord. So God says, if you will believe in my son, you will be saved. So this morning, you don't have to leave here wondering about these things and thinking, does this apply to me? Here at New Hope, we take God according to his word, and we believe his word is rock solid. So if you believe his promise, his promise says that you will be destined for eternity because the promise is to all who believe. Thank you, Lord. So I want to pray with you right now because we're about to step into a moment where you get to sing a really old hymn. You're going to love it. And when we sing it, it's a reflection of where we're at. But before we do that, I want to pray with you. Father, I ask that the words that we've studied this morning and we've taken the time to spend energy in this is a result of our love for you and for the kingdom and your ability to rescue and redeem. So we turn this time over to you and ask that you would bless it. Use it in our life this week. Use it in the lives of people that we will speak into. Let your words not stop short, but echo and echo and reverberate into the lives of people that we come into contact with this very week. Use us for the sake of your kingdom because of what you've done for us. We find it utterly amazing, and so we're willing to declare that. In Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen.